Second Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, For when they maintain this, and that is their denial of the second coming in verse 4, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. May God bless the reading of His Word. Okay, so let's review for a second. So, in chapter 3, Peter is now laying out the main false teaching that the fighting and drawing off disciples and Christians to, uh, to fall into this heresy, this destructive heresy. And basically, it was the denial of His coming, the second coming of Christ. In verse 4, they were saying, where is the promise of His coming? And the rationale was, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So they denied the second coming based on their observation of the stability of history. But their observation was colored by their own presupposition. That idea of Christ coming with this cataclysmic, dramatic event is not going to happen because we just don't see that that's the way history is developing. And uh, so we deny the second coming. They basically held to a form of naturalism or we could call it uniformitarianism that the world coming of Christ. Of course, the underlining motive for them, I believe, is that they understood that when Christ came back, you got the sheep-goat judgment. The sheep go into everlasting life. The goats get judged and condemned to everlasting punishment. So glorifies the saints. They don't, they don't want anything a part of that. That threatens their conscience to live out their lifestyle and influence others to follow them in their sinful lifestyle. So, just like false teachers to come, so you can live the way you want to without consequences, without uh, the threat of being punished. And that was similar to what they were saying back then. So they denied the second coming. We don't see it. Everything continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So this, get, this great intrusion into history and into our world by Christ at the second coming, it's not going to happen. Those things just don't happen. They reject them. They deny them. And so basically, they, uh, they in their own mind can justify no threat from God to punish them. And all of these points will torpedo their view of naturalism because number one, God has created the world. And that's just a little bit of a divine intervention where He creates the heavens and the earth. Secondly, catastrophic judgment of the flood. That's big. So God has intervened in a huge way at the flood. <clears throat> and thirdly, He has promised by His Word that He's going to come again and judge the world another time. So those are the three points He's going to make. So let's look, number one, at his first argument against these false teachers' view of naturalism or uniformitarianism. 
And he says in verse 5, for when they maintain this, that is when the false teachers deny the second coming based upon this gradual, everything's the same theory, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So notice he says, first off, it escapes their notice. In other words, these false teachers are so blind by their sinful desire to deny God's truth that they don't see the obvious that God has intervened in dramatic ways into this world. The truth is right under their noses, but they don't see it. They've either, either never read Genesis or they willfully reject it or they just read it as some kind of fable or something like that. So Peter starts out by saying it escapes their notice. And there's probably the idea of an intentional blindness, unwillingness to believe what God has revealed in the Word of God already. Notice he goes on to say that by the Word of God, because by the Word of God He created them, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Emphasizing that this is God's Word. The Word of God has spoken this way. And it's interesting, when you read Genesis of creation and repeat it over and over again, is then God said. So the creation itself was by breath of His mouth all their host. For He spoke, and the author says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared or made by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So God created out of nothing, notice, that God has intervened in our world when He created the world. That's pretty dramatic. That's huge. And it really claimed, going back to verse 4, that ever since the fathers fell asleep, all that's a great ex- uh, exhibition of His power over the world. By creating the heavens and the earth, but then he's, he's just idle all the rest of the time. So it's inconsistent. It's illogical. You can't deny that God can't intervene again. Word of God, the heavens existed long ago. They existed because we know in other verses that God spoke them into existence. And then he says, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So what does Peter have in mind here? I don't think he's talking about the creation of the original earth in Genesis 1.1. I think here he's talking about God bringing the dry land up out of the water on day three. I think that best fits this particular language. For example, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, Look at how this is recorded in Genesis 1. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And in the Septuagint, that Greek word for earth is gay, G-E, which is the same word that Peter uses in 2 Peter 3. He called the dry land earth or land. And the gathering of the waters He called seas and God saw that it was good. So when you look back at 2 Peter 3.6, 
He says the world was at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, but it's the it's it's the world, it's the ground that he brought up out of the sea. So in verse five, just to run back there, when he says that the earth was formed out of water and by water, he's not talking about the original planet. He's talking about the dry ground coming up out of the water. When God created the earth, originally it was covered with up. Now again, if that's the right view, this is incredibly global and dramatic and powerful for God to do it. He created the heavens and the earth, and then by His spoken word, He brought up the dry ground out of the sea, out of all the wind. can logically say He can't intervene in powerful ways again. So Peter is merely drawing their attention to Genesis chapter 1 and showing them that God has indeed intervened and He would... Secondly, a second argument is found in verse 6. Not only did He create the world out of water, through water, but He also destroyed it with water in verse 6. Through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. So God, again, did a very dramatic, powerful thing. He intervened by destroying the land that He created with this incredible worldwide flood. Now notice Peter believes that the flood was universal. It was worldwide. When he says in verse 6, the world was destroyed, being flooded by water. It's not a regional flood. It's a worldwide flood. And that fits in with his argument that God has intervened in this world in a cosmic, powerful way, a global way, when He destroyed the, uh, the land with water. Now let me just point out the word destroyed here does not mean He annihilated the earth. He annihilated the dry land. But He brought about a radical change when He flooded the entire surface of the earth with water. The flood did not cause the world to cease to exist, but caused the arrangement of the surface of the earth to be radically changed. So, And this is going to play into uh, the next verse that we'll look at in a moment. But again, go back to Genesis 7, the flood. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. This is the flood. Notice the water from underneath up through the ground. So you have this incredible global activity where there are no doubt this volcanic activity, shifting of the continental plates at that time, all brought about a cataclysmic rearrangement of the surface of the earth a reconstruction of the natural order that God sovereignly brought to pass. Now again, Peter's point is, look at the flood. If God did that, then these false teachers, it escaped their notice. They think that everything is just you know, rocking along gradually at a slow pace. But look how God has intervened. And if He's intervened in that way, He can intervene again. If He's destroyed the earth once, He can do it Again, this uniformitarianism, this slow change over time, doesn't fit with the record of Scripture that God brought about this incredible flood. 
This, uh, by the way, was not a natural in Genesis 6 verse 17. It's a natural big rainstorm that, that occurred. God just caused the, the, the depths to burst open and the rain to fall. And it was His supernatural, miraculous activity that brought this to pass. False teachers are not willing to admit that. There's another thing they don't want to think about. Why did God bring the flood? It's because of the sinfulness of man, wasn't it? In Genesis 6.5, says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every incorrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh, Now this is why the false teachers don't want to acknowledge the credibility of a worldwide flood. Because God brought a worldwide flood, but the false teachers don't want to see that. That makes them accountable for their sin and they want to deny that did the surface of the land, the earth, and rearranged it when the flood waters began to recede off. But they don't want to acknowledge that because that where is the promise of His coming? They're trying to influence other people to believe that as well so that they can sin without the fear of judgment. And yet they overlook an incredible illustration of God bringing judgment upon the entire world because of their sin. So all of this is something that uh, they want to ignore. They want to explain away. And, uh, and Peter is sticking it in their face you have chosen to overlook these truths that undermine your uniformitarian worldview. Speaks of the future judgment of the world. Notice what he says. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So the world was destroyed with uh, water back during the flood. But now God is going to destroy it again. He promises that He will. Only this time it will be with fire. So again, if God brought a great cataclysmic destruction of the entire surface of the world in Noah's flood, and He judged it for its sin, then the assertion of the false teachers goes lame. So when they deny the future coming of Christ, the future judgment that Christ will bring when He comes, then they're trying to find some kind of false safety through their denial. The very thing they dread, judgment for their sin at the second coming, is the very thing that God has already done. And if God has already done it, then He will do it again. And a future destruction connected to a future judgment is not unreasonable. That's what Peter is in effect saying as he's shooting down their reasoning. Again, verse 7. For by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Notice the false teachers deny this. Yet God by His Word has prophesied that it will occur. And obviously, if God's Word has brought about the creation of the, of the universe, if God's Word has brought about the flood, 
And if God's Word promises a future judgment, then you can be confident it will take place. Because God's Word is true, it's faithful, it always comes to pass. And if He's promised a future judgment, you better be ready for it because it will come to pass. So this third argument now looks to the future. And again, Peter draws their conviction, their words, their eyes back to the Word of God because that's where God says there is a future judgment still coming. The Word of God has told us that this present heavens and earth that we're living on now is being reserved, keeping it for a future day of judgment. Again, God's Word is in control. And we're told in Colossians now is, is sustaining this present heavens and earth. All the atoms, all the molecules, He is holding it together. He is sustaining it until this future day of judgment. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says of Christ, He's the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds and has reserved this present heavens and earth for a coming day of judgment by fire. Peter, uh, later on in this chapter, is going to address this issue of judgment by fire. You can look ahead at verse 10 and verse 12 where he will bring up the notion of this present heavens being destroyed by fire. But here he gives the first reference to it in verse 7. Uh, throughout the Bible, fire has oftentimes been associated with God's judgment. For example, in Isaiah 66, verse 15, it says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind, to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. Now, that's in the context of Him creating a new heavens and a new earth. And here He's going to come with fire. So judgment oftentimes is described in terms of fire. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer reckoned unto the burning of fire. Jesus even said that He will gather His wheat into the barn, but He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable unquenchable fire. So what Peter is referencing here is that this present heavens is being reserved for a future judgment and it will be destroyed with fire. So he destroyed it once with water. The next time he's going to destroy it with fire. So what does that refer to, the fire? Well, I don't think it's a, atomic bombs uh, being set off all over the world. Uh, it's not a man-made disaster. The, the flood was not man-made. It was God-made. And I think this fire is going to be God-made as well. Huge, incredible blast that destroys everything and then radiation. But then look at what he adds to that. And now he's kind of pointing the finger at the false teachers. He's saying the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So when Christ comes back and destroys this present heavens and earth, He will also judge the ungodly. He will judge unbelievers. 
and the fire that's reserved for the destruction of the present heavens and earth is also going to be a part of the judgment and destruction of ungodly men. One of the things I want to point out here briefly is that the false teachers were denying this. No second coming, no future judgment, so we can just live any way we want to. So they were denying it. But just because you deny it, you can't stop it. Pharaoh denied the plagues coming. You know, Moses came and said, we're going to do this. But he didn't believe it. But he couldn't stop them coming. The generation of Noah's day, they mocked and scoffed at Noah. They didn't believe it was going to come, but they couldn't stop it from coming. So these false teachers, they can deny it all they want, but they're not going to be able to stop it because God's Word is behind it. This is just not the the convictions of certain men. This is what God Himself has spoken. And by His Word, He created the universe. And by His Word, He destroyed the ancient world. And by His Word, He's going to destroy this world. So the confidence of the certainty of the event is rooted in God's Word. And no matter how many people don't believe it or deny it, they cannot stop it from coming. It will come. A word about this destruction of ungodly men. Many people today, there's a growing infatuation with the idea of of annihilation when it comes to judgment. That when uh, Christ comes back, He's going to annihilate the unbelievers. So there's no hell. There's no eternal punishment. They just get annihilated. And they they refer to this word destruction to support their idea. Well, look, God's going to destroy them so they won't exist anymore. This is the same word that occurred back up earlier when uh, Peter talked about the uh, destruction of the, uh, of the world in verse 6. It's the same word. It's linked to the same root word. One's a noun, the other's a verb. But when God destroyed the world, did He annihilate it? When He destroyed it with water, did He annihilate it? He didn't re-annihilate it. It still existed. It got reformed. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which is a standard uh, theological discussion of the major Greek words in the New Testament. It's ten volumes, so it's very scholarly, very thorough. And this is what they say about this word destruction. They say, what is meant here is not a simple extinction of existence, but an everlasting state of torment and death. So those who want to claim the word destruction teaches annihilation, they've got it wrong. That's not what it means. It's also totally contrary to the rest of what the Scripture says about the eternal state of the ungodly or unbelievers. Jesus, even in His story about the rich man and Lazarus, when they both died, the rich man went to hell or Hades and he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me 
And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool on my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. When Jesus described the place of the unbelievers where they go when they die, it is not annihilation or extinction. There is a conscious suffering and torment. That's how Jesus described hell. He said in uh, Matthew 13, We'll throw them into the furnace of fire, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, they will go go away into eternal punishment. There's no idea of annihilation or extinction at all, and yet this is a growing popular view uh, among so-called Christians. In Revelation chapter 14, those who take the mark of the beast, whatever that is, describes them that they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. That's not annihilate, which cannot fail, has told us that the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept at the same time when Christ comes back, the second coming. And He'll create a new heavens and a new earth which reference 12. Uh, let's see, actually, yeah, verse 13. As it was from the beginning, nothing changes. So any dramatic, climactic, catastrophic events are out of the norm that we deny it. And Peter is saying, you have totally, willfully promises he's going to do it again with fire. It's going to take place. You must believe it. You can deny it but you cannot stop it. To repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Because one day Christ will come back. One day this world will be judged. One day, no matter how often it's denied, is to come to Jesus Christ. Is to come and confess your sins unless we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the Gospel, by the way. The day it turned from our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who alone can save sinners like you. And As the second coming, when He prom- promised the second coming, He's also promised that He will save and forgive any to escape the coming judgment that God has told us will surely take place. Is to come to His Son, Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And I pray that you would do that. Today is a day of salvation. Come to Christ. Place your faith in Him. That's all you have to do. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You don't have to jump through hoops. Just come. And that's a promise that cannot fail. Well, as I want to wrap up just uh, before we take the Lord's Supper, there is an application here to the some. But even as believers, we are tempted to do something similar, I think. Because we can look at our life and we can see things that we don't like. God, deliver me from this. Take this away. Maybe we prayed for a loved one or maybe we're praying for circumstances that are such an irritation or a torment to us. And we have prayed, oh God, intervene and, and deliver me from this. And yet, it has not happened. 
And there are times when even believers can have their faith challenged when we have prayed over and over again for God to, to bring a certain blessing in our life and it has not come. And we begin to think, Lord, are You there? Lord, do You love me? Lord, are You sovereign in control? Being. And He hasn't. And we begin to wonder kind of in the direction of these false teachers. Well, maybe His Word isn't true. Maybe He's not going to deliver me. It's a test to say, will you trust me? Because God oftentimes chooses not to work in great, miraculous, supernatural ways. That's very rare today. Normally, God's hand operates through the glove of natural events. And yet, He's very much involved. He's very much in control. And what the Lord wants of us, that when we're purpose, He has a plan, and His hands are at work, though we may not see them or notice them, God began to complain. We began to become overly worried and fearful. For, for God to raise up godly men to change things, to bring us back to the foundational principles of our country. And it's not happening. At least. But what we need to remember is what God told Isaiah when He said, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my way higher. But you have to trust Him. It may not be lightning, thunder, Supernatural, miraculous. God is just working through the means of grace. And that's how He oftentimes normally chooses to work. We just have to trust Him. And to know that He's involved in everything in your life. He controls people. He controls events. He controls circumstances. Don't be like these false teachers and begin to deny the Word of God. But trust Him knowing that He's going to work good out of everything that touches our life. And even when we can't make sense of it, God's hand is at work even in the dark times to encourage us that we can trust Him for the future because He is very much in control of the present. And that should encourage us, I think, in our faith and not follow the bad example, the wicked example of these false teachers. Well, again, Jesus, and the saints are those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it's now our great privilege to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remember. And so we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is His meal with us. It's a fellowship meal and thankfulness for the salvation that we have through Him. This is for believers only. So if you're here this morning and you're in need for Christ and remember His promise, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And we pray that you'll come to faith in Him. We use unleavened bread because it's a beautiful picture ordained by God for the sinlessness of Christ so that He could come and bear our sin because He had no sin of His own. We break the bread just to remind us audibly of the incredible suffering and torment of His own flesh being torn as He was nailed to the cross. But Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, yet without sin, who in His great love for us came and died 
so that we might not be judged on the last day, but be glorified and be with Him forever. So before we pass the bread, let's just thank God for it. So let's pray. Father, thank You for sending Your Son from heaven as the great shepherd of the sheep who gave His life for His sheep. And Lord, we just want to thank You that though there was nothing that we could do as sinners to save ourselves, Jesus lovingly and willingly came and died for us to save us. And so Lord, we just want to praise You and worship You and thank You for the forgiveness of our sins so that when we stand before You on the last day, there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the blood of Christ has washed away all of our sins as we have placed our faith and trust in Him. So Lord, thank You. And we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.